I am ready, Jesse. Ready for what, Dennis? To thank our Patreon supporters, whose oh, money is yeah. not going into the Idiot Fund, but to actually support <laughs> this podcast. Are we going to always mention the Idiot Fund? Uh, well, I'm kind I, I got to like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you to uh, Paul Naranya and Alejandro Rivera, our new Patreon supporters. If yes. you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And we have um, all other things happening right now. We have the preaching conference coming up in November. November 9th. November 9th. And we're going to be guests on the Catholic Man Show in a couple of weeks. That's right. If you don't listen to the Catholic Man Show podcast, you definitely should. And we're going to be uh, guests on there. And we're going to be guests on another podcast, the Quizzical Papist. The Quizzical Papist. We are going to get quizzed. And uh, I may or may not know the answers. <laughs> it's, I'm, Jesse's used to that, but I'm yeah. not. Yeah, I'll don't worry. I'll walk you through it. It's actually not as hard as you think. So, what's today's podcast about? Well, I was there. I should remember. Yeah, you should get. We just recorded. It's it. the uh, 100th anniversary of the 100th episode of the Liturgy Guys. Podcast. No, it's the oh. it's the 100th anniversary <laughs> of Tralis Alecitudini, the 1903 right. motu proprio by Pius X on sacred music and active participation. But the big news is this is our 100th episode. Our 100th episode. And we now, because of this episode that you're listening to right now in your ears. Your ear holes. We have downloaded, we have 250,000 downloads, a quarter of a million downloads on this podcast. About liturgy. Downloads. Of all things. So without further ado, episode seven of season three of The Liturgy Liturgy Guys. Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jesse. You remember how there was this one time I was like, um, we should do a podcast? I thought that was my idea. It was not. Okay. It was my idea. And I think you are the most reluctant of the three of us. I still to do am. It. Yeah, okay. Well, I got to tell you something. Yeah. We, this is our 100th episode. Whoa! Ding, I just ding, ding, ding. don't Oh, did you ring the bell? I didn't ring the bell. Oh, man. But we had our little cake with candles, or we had our- We did. Donuts, Pop-Tarts, and- Fig Newtons for Chris to stay regular with candles on it today. So I look on the website or po- Facebook to see our anniversary celebration. I don't know how you eat Fig Newtons. They're the grossest thing in the world. Oh, they are awesome. Either. But not only yeah. is this our 100th episode, it's also momentous for another thing. Tell us. This episode will be the episode in which we reach one quarter of a million downloads. 200,000 downloads. <laughs> on a podcast about liturgy, which What's is pretty great. Download? Yeah, we'll talk to you about that later. <laughs> and this podcast, on, on, of all the podcasts in the entire world, we're ranking somewhere in the, the top 20% of all podcasts. Not in just, the world. Not just Christian or Catholic or liturgy podcasts. But, but we're the all, number one liturgy podcast. We probably we? are, yeah. We, somebody voted us. There are some other one. ones, actually, so we don't yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think, I think that exists. But Enough anyway, talking, Jesse. So we're going to celebrate this feat with, I don't know, you guys said you had something planned. Well, when I was a kid, there was a commercial for a toy, and it had a little song that went like this. I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. Look what I did with my hands. 
Spy from KTEL. Spirograph. Okay. Oh, well, I know what a spirograph is. Well, that's the spirograph song. And why did I sing that There's song? There's a spirograph app for Jesse. Um, I used to make some pretty sweet logos with spirograph. But John Paul II would say, I just don't believe it. Look what I did with my... Chirograph. <laughs> okay. What? Well, that isn't the hold on, hold on. intro. What is a chirograph? Chirograph <laughs> oh, wait. is... Wait. A sign of the cross? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how many ways you could be wrong in that simple little word. <laughs> it's, okay, but is there a way... What's a chi Is there a way... Is there a way... Is there a way... Is that why you're saying chiro? What's a chiro? The symbol, the chi in the row. It's the cross. It's the, not a, no, it's not a cross. The chi is what? That's the k sound. It's the Greek. X. It looks like an X. Okay. And the row. It's the, yeah, it's the P with the yeah. X on it. Yeah, that's, that's a, a row. It looks like a P. So but yeah. that is a X false a cognate here. It just means written by his own hand. Paragraph. He wrote it with his own that's hand. That's it? That's yeah. surprisingly boring. It's the same as like <laughs> autograph, you know? Are you sure we want to waste? You got your spirograph, your chirograph, and your autograph. Yeah. Well, like, a chirograph and an autograph are actually the same thing. Self-written. Uh, but in other words, if a pope writes something out in his own hand, that means he thinks it's pretty darn important. Father Rob Johansson told me about this the other day. So, you know, if a pope says, take a letter and, you know, the little person, helper, writes it out for him, then he's not that interested. But he writes it in his own hand. That means he thinks it's important. So this is the chirograph of the Supreme Pontiff, John Paul II, on what, Chris? The centenary of... That's 100 years, Jesse. Jesse. I know what a centenary is. <laughs> the solicitudine. God so bless the, you. Man, is that... What kind of a title is that? The chirograph on the centenary of Trale Solicitudine. Well, actually, it's the chirograph for the centenary of the Motu Proprio. Oh, Motu Proprio. Trial I selected you. I didn't know I this could get... should write this stuff in I didn't know hand. this could get nerdier, but it just did. Yeah, well, this is our 100th episode, right? And this is what John Paul said on the 100th anniversary of Trial of Selectitudine, which would be what day and year, Chris, and what time? Oh my gosh, it's the Feast of St. Cecilia. Which which is? November 22nd. In what year? 1922, I don't know, 12, (laughs) 12, 1912. Have we taught you nothing? (laughs) So if the, if Trial of Selectitudine was 1903, when was the centenary? Oh, uh, 2003. Yes. I thought you were talking about the original document. I was trying to... Anyway, you know, this... Charles Lechitudini, great mm-hmm. password, as they always say, was the opening of the official kind of people <laughs> recognition. We really needed JJR passwords. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can spell it anyway. Um, was the official kind of people recognition of the liturgical movement, Pius X, the great liturgical pope. It's about music, um, even though it uses the phrase active participation for the first time by a pope ever in a, an official papal document. In 1903. Yeah, 1903. And, and that's interesting because that's really the takeaway popularly of Trilisilichitudine is the term active participation. But, but some of the was. other things he says about the music, about its three qualities that John Paul II will evoke, those are kind of poo-pooed. Uh, he uh, said, many he cases said that word. Sorry, you can edit that out. Liturgical poo-poo? Hey, hey. Well, yeah, because the thing was about music. It was about chant and how if people could sing the chant, then they could participate in the texts of singing the text of the liturgy. So he was very interested in putting the words of the liturgy on the So what were they doing before? And tongues and people. Well, it depends who you ask. The standard line is, and I'll, you know, some people will be mad at me for saying this, but the standard line is people went to low mass and they either didn't do anything or they sang some popular hymns. 
I mean, they did stuff interiorly, hopefully, but they didn't have much exterior participation at all. Passively participating. Well, that's a passive thing. They wanted active participation, so people to actually know what they were doing, say the words, sing the words, join in the song, and actually do liturgical actions, not just some other actions while the liturgy was going on in front of them. So when you hear these, this language of not being silent spectators or passive spectators at the liturgy, what that phrase comes from the time when people often were. They'd be reading a holy book or saying the rosary or doing some other devotions or doing something else. And the idea was get them to sing what they're supposed to sing, answer what they're supposed to answer, stand when they stand, kneel when they kneel, all of that sort of stuff. So that's where active participation It's like when you from. go to like a middle school dance <clears throat> and you go there and you just like hang out around like the perimeter of the dance floor and like other people are actively participating, but you're like, nah, I'm good. I'm cool. I never did that. Ever? Mm-mm. I was never invited to a middle school dance, so I don't think I did either. Didn't you invite someone to the middle school dance? That's what you're supposed to do? Yes. I fail at life. Wow. I just don't believe it. So Spiral graph. What, what did he do with his Cairo graph? Chris? Well, he uh, re-emphasized what Pius X said in Trilate Solicitude. And you know who did English. that first? Pius the. 11th in Divini Cultus in 1928. He wrote a 25th anniversary of... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I don't think anybody did a 50th or a 75th, but John Paul swooped in for a 100th. Well, what were the things that Pius X said that John Paul II emphasized? Basically, they all say this. Pius X had it right, and nobody's doing it, you ignorant fools. So I'm the Pope, and I say so. That's pretty much what and, Pius said. And did it work? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> then Pius XII said the same thing in 1955, which was not an anniversary. So we need another we need another Pius to get us in line. And then Sacrosanct Concilium pretty much said the same thing in slightly more vague terms. And then John Paul said, "All right, I've had enough of these. Do what I tell you." And what did he tell us, Chris? Well, he said first of all that Pius X and now me, or is it myself? We, is I, it the royal we? we? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's I. Uh, he says from the very beginning uh, what the purpose of sacred music is, and he wants to reemphasize that point. The, the sanctification of the people? Unto the greater glory of God. Mm-hmm. That's the general purpose of the liturgy, and everything that is liturgical, that's a part of it, shares in those uh, purposes. And Our he, sanctification so that God can be glorified. Right. And if the music is good, then he said they'd be better disposed for the reception of the fruits of grace. So... If you think about going to church and singing a decent hymn, you know, any old song, okay, it's fine, but it's not about the feast of the day, maybe. It's not about the nature of the gospel for the reading that day. It's just a song you sing, and then it's done, and then you start with the sign of the cross. How about making How about you sing a new song unto the Lord? Well, it could be a new song. Hopefully, it's a proper and appropriate song. So, the idea is if the song, whether it's the entrance chant or or a hymn, should be already warming up your brain for what's going to happen that day, and that would theoretically make you more receptive to the grace that's going to come along. So why didn't any of this happen? It seems like it's, um, you know, everybody keeps saying, hey, we need to do this. Hey, we need to do this. Hey, we need to do this. And nothing ever gets done. Uh, so why doesn't anything ever get done? Yeah, I think in Divini Cultus, Pius the, uh, and actually Pius twelve later, complained that they, people were not free to ignore his prescriptions on chant. And he was like kind of lamenting that even the threat of papal censure was not shaking people out of their complacency and their favorite theatrical If it's tunes. one thing that will shake me, it's papal censure. I don't even know what it, that phrase means, but... It's like a chirograph. Being censured by the Pope <laughs> saying, hey, you are officially no, in the No, but it's a wrong. great question. Why do they have to keep saying this? It's a lot of work, I think, okay, to so learn chant. Okay, so it's a lot chant. of work. 
If people like their devotional hymns and wherever they sing them at mass or other places, they don't want to be separated from them. The typical music director in 1910 maybe didn't know the theology of chant and who reads papal documents anyway, really? I mean, come on. Uh, the two people that are not me that are sitting at the table. <laughs> Even I don't read that many of them. But, you know, those, bish- those documents went out in Latin and they were sent to the bishops, right? Hey, please, this is my letter. And maybe the bishop read it. Maybe the bishop didn't read it. Maybe the bishop implemented this in the diocese. Maybe not. Maybe the pastors refused. Maybe the music directors refused. So it takes a long time for something to come down the chart of uh, the flow chart of the hierarchy of the church. Even in 1910, people didn't always want to obey. Even in, yeah, well, in, oh, in the church moves too. so slow. <laughs> but I mean, let, let's take a music director now. I mean, um, what by what criteria... Uh, is, is he is he making liturgical musical decisions right based on their music per, probably a performance music degree or what well, the probably, people but, like but there has to be a part of that that is informed by the tradition and the documents and the yeah. teaching of the magisterium but yeah. where would you learn that ex- oh uh, like the liturgical, liturgical institute yeah, yeah. or right, so, our future online course about yeah. sacred music which will be coming up in well, a few let's months. take let's take one let, okay let me give me a question here. So uh, Pi, uh, John Paul II talks about Pius X explaining more precisely the ministerial function exercised by sacred music. Yes. So what does it mean that music exercises a ministerial function? Uh, it's not just pretty background noise. Because you're, you're doing the thing that you're intended to do in the liturgy, which is participate as the, as the body of Christ and with the head of Christ, the priest. Okay. Now... Christ is the priest. He's the prime minister. Yeah. And how did he carry out, I'm thinking of three things, how did he carry out his ministry? And then consequently, how will ministers carry out their ministry and how will the baptized carry out their ministry in three ways? Is is it the same three ways for all of those groups of people? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, Love. Maybe. (laughs) I I hope that's in and through all of them. When we talk about liturgical uh, ministries... Mm-hmm. Uh, we look to the prime minister and we f- figure out how Jesus carried out his ministry and how the church speaks about this as prophetically, priestly, and kingly. Oh, yeah, priest, prophet, and king. Okay, yeah. so Jesus uh, proclaims the word. He is the word. He offers sacrifice and he serves others. So if music is also ministerial, what does it do? It's doing all three of those things. It's announcing the word, and this is something we can get to in a minute. It's Mm. meant to amplify the word. The word is always first. The music is meant to amplify and make it more uh, clear and so that it can penetrate. Wasn't the prologue of the Gospel of John said, go make a difference, go make a difference. You can make a difference (laughs) in the world. It must be a different translation. Yeah. Okay, it's uh, sacrificial. favorite song. The music helps facilitate the offering of yourself unto God the Father for his glory and your sanctification. And it's at the service of the liturgy. The liturgy and the mass isn't a platform for singing, singing music, but rather the music is at the service of the rest of the liturgy. Right, and all the popes talk about music being the number one art in, associated with the liturgy, the most important one, which Don't kind of hurts. Dennis McNamara. More than that. Art Garfunkel? It hurts my feelings a little bit because of art and architecture, but art and architecture are nice, but they're not woven into the nature of liturgy itself, where the liturgy is a sung prayer, and music and words are so intimately united that it's the most important of the arts for liturgy. Dennis. Yes, Chris. Quiz number two. Oh, I get this one, huh? Yeah. yeah I, have the answer. I have the answer. It's probably because I failed the last one. I would like to repropose several fundamental principles 
ensuring that liturgical music corresponds ever more closely to its specific function. You and John Paul II. Yeah, like and he, that. That, that's, that's from number three. And so then he goes on to list three principal qualities of mm. sacred music. Do you know what those are? Offensive, trite, and questionable in theology. Dennis, those are wrong answers. Oh, darn it. Okay. The buzzer. What are they really? <laughs> uh, what? The first one's holiness, a form yep. holiness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, artistic, true art. And then the third one is universal. That's right. That's right. So again, these, uh, you know, as I read the documents, these in some ways are very difficult to apply. And so these principal uh, criteria are often replaced or supplemented or not really uh, relied upon uh, a lot today or have they over the course of the century. Like I said before, active participation has really lived on, but uh, holiness, goodness of form and universal, uh, universality uh, right. really hasn't. Because you could have a lot of activity at liturgy that's not very liturgical, right? Just being active is not the goal. It's being active according to the nature of the rite itself. So that's why all these things come back to what is the liturgy about, what is its end, and what does it do? That's telos, teleological study of the liturgy. So what was the first one again? Holiness. Holiness, right. But this, uh, this is a, uh, a point that people debate. Is music holy in itself, or is it holy insofar as it's related to the liturgical action? The latter. Well, that's what he says. Yeah. That's what he says. So, um, so which music in the liturgy is holier? What or the what? The dialogues. Well, it's going to be that music that accompanies the most important parts of the liturgical action, right? Isn't that what he's saying? Or is integrately woven into the liturgical action. So when, you know, when this gets translated in other documents, when they rank, you know, about singing the most important parts first, it seems to be based on this principle that you want to sing, the most important parts are those that are most integral to the liturgical action. So what about, you know, the opening song versus... Uh, the closing song, <laughs> which isn't a thing, right, yeah. Dennis? She doesn't that exist. <laughs> but uh, but one of one of the hymns versus one versus a dialogue, because the dialogues are more integral to the liturgical action. That music is holier than the opening song. Are you say. just making that up? Because I don't see this in the document of uh, well, John look, Paul II here. So at number four, it says sacred music increases in holiness to the degree that it is intimately linked with liturgical action. Oh, so you're saying within the liturgical action, some things are more liturgical and therefore more increased in holiness? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I was seeing, I was thinking more to the worldly profane music or devotional music that every mu all the music in Mass was... Uh, well, this next slide actually, liturgical. to follow on, for, for this very Wait, reason... So now we're on number four. We're, we're still on number four. This is, this is the very next we slide on number three? I read. Paragraph four. Okay. Paragraph four. For this very reason, not all without distinction that is outside the temple, profanum, is fit to cross the threshold. Okay, now stop there. What is, it, what is profanity, Jesse? Uh, something that is outside of the temple. <laughs> or blankety-blank words. Yeah. <laughs> well, what? Was that, was that incorrect, Sorry. what I said? No, that's the, like that's the actual correct answer. I think most of the time we think of profanity, just, we think blankety-blank, your mom's going to wash your mouth out with soap. Mm -hmm. The word for temple in Don't you talk uh, about Latin my mother. is, is fanum. Fanum, the fanum. So if you're in front of the you the, are the for fanum, you're fanum. fanum. You're outside so the fane by what, the door in and, front of it. What if you're anti-fane? <laughs> <laughs> but but I think this is a good corrective because what he's saying here is just because let's say you want a a, a pretty Garth Brooks song at your your uh, wedding, Chris Gaines, but right? yes. So and there's no bad words in it or something like that. 
uh, there's no profanity in it. Is it still a profane song? Yes. Yes. Yes, because it's uh, just because it doesn't have evil or sinister or sinful uh, words or something like that. If it's not designed to be in the inside the temple, then it doesn't belong in the temple. Right. And in number three, which you brought up, Jesse, mm-hmm. John Paul quoted himself as saying. He needed to, he wanted to express the need to, quote, purify worship from ugliness of style, distasteful forms of expression, or uninspired musical texts that are not worthy of the great act being celebrated. I think that's the key issue. And John Paul saying this in you know 2003. You're pretty, you know you're pretty big, a uh, big deal when you can quote yourself. I want to follow on this sure. point about quoting yourself, Just but this line about the, uh, it's not everything that's outside the temple is fit to cross the threshold. He continues, my venerable predecessor, Paul VI, wisely said, commenting on a decree of the Council of Trent. But I mean, notice this. This is John Paul II uh, on the occasion of Pius X, now quoting Paul VI, who is commenting on the Council of Trent. This is so many layers. Well, that, that's the point. Yeah. He's not saying, hey, you know, this is just, uh, even though this is written by my own hand, this is not just, you know, my own personal opinion here. He is going deep back into the tradition and relying on centuries worth of thinking uh, in this regard to lay these points out. This reminds me of uh, a scene from The Office where... Michael Scott started his own company, and he has a quote on the dry erase board, and it says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, and underneath it says Wayne Gretzky, and then underneath that it says Michael Scott. (laughs) (laughs) So this is kind of what these popes are doing. Actually, there's a footnote to Wayne Gretzky. (laughs) Dennis, what's the second quality of sacred music? True art. True art, what's that mean? Uh, I don't remember. That has to be revelatory of the sacred things, I think, something like that. No, I think this is, the, this is more of the musical um, element. Number five, there can be no music composed for the celebration of the sacred rites, which is not, first of all, true art, or which does not have the eff- efficacy which the church aims at, obtaining and admitting into her liturgy the art of musical sounds. In other words, it has to be, according to, this is not a theological criteria so much this is just you know a a musical criteria does it have all of those things that make music sound good yeah but what is art anyway i mean whatever (laughs) no but my question my question is when the definition of art is changing constantly how do we know what true art is yeah well it's not changing for the church though it might change for you i mean you might think that uh, true art is whatever expressing your mood as you wake up you know that morning but that's not the church's criteria for sacred okay. art. okay um there's a very fine line in the spirit of the liturgy by pope benedict who says that you know there's this kind of objective order of the stars and the planets that represent harmony and concord and the rest. The music by man must somehow plug into this objective sphere. So art for the church isn't what you happen to be you know, putting forward. Art for the church is a reflection of the divine artist. Uh, and so when we talk about this, uh, art, the true form of music, it has to meet some objective uh, uh, standards and not whatever you might happen to like. Right. The better word is art as revealer rather than art as expression. Uh, so the revealer, I like that. The artist in the classical sense, the artist was somebody who knew and somehow perceived what the future heavenly glory might be like and then found a way to express it in her own time. What well, the current modern model of artist is I just express some feeling that I have. So it's a difference time. of source material. Well, one yeah. is the source of, 
you know, the heavenly One glory. is reading the catechism in a sense. One is expressing what you think about the catechism. Okay, they're both relevant in some ways. One is revealing the mind of God from God through Christ, through the church, and you're supposed to conform to it. And one is just expressing whatever you want about whatever. But even uh, a friend of mine uh, and podcast listener, listener Justin Jeffco. Hello, sent, Justin. Sent me uh, uh, a link to the top 500 rock albums of all time. How many of those were Spinal Tap records? <laughs> I, I, haven't got, I haven't looked through all of them. Oh, okay. Uh, if you had to guess what number one was, what do you think it would be? Uh, uh, I was a little surprised. Bands, songs, uh, or albums? Albums. albums? Jim Neighbors cover songs of ACDC. If Nickelback is on there, I'm going to be so <laughs> mad. Uh, number Beat, one. Beatles? Yeah. White uh, album? Beatles had, uh, it was Sgt. Pepper's. Okay. Okay. But they had like three or four out of the top 10. And Jim Neighbors uh, covers of, what did you say? ACDC. ACDC is not on the list. Nickelback is not on the okay, list, right? So even though, you know, we're talking about, there's a reason why we still listen to the Beatles today and nobody, well, I don't know, people listen to Nickelback. Today. I'm listening to the Beatles you know, right now. I'm we not listen even listening to, to, you uh, to Mozart and hide it in the rest because even, you know, human beings recognize that, that these groups, whether it's Mozart or the Beatles, they knew something about the art of making uh, sounds that were appealing to human li- human ears. I can make sounds, but they're just not appealing to human ears. That's right. This is this is Jim Neighbors, by the way. Did you know little Gomer Pyle could sing like this? Who's Gomer Pyle? <laughs> Gomer Pyle, you millennial. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Uh, what's the third? No, what's the third one? This is, no, universality. No, universality. This universality. one is pretty straightforward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unlike that musical. This is the hardest uh, one. No, it's not. It's okay, super easy. Explain it. You guys all can't the, agree on anything. I all the it. documents about chant are pretty clear on universality that, that Gregorian chant has been used exclusively by the church, exclusively for prayer. It's never been brought into the profane world. It's never been associated for anything else. It's something that all nations on earth recognize as usable by the church. And no matter how many local traditions and conventions you have in your cultural tradition, that the universality of Gregorian chant can apply to anyone, especially at universal type uh, events like big international gatherings and so on. So it belongs to everybody, whether you're from Europe or not. He says, uh, wait, was he right there? Oh, he's, he's, uh, ding, ding, ding. Ding, He says that has the general character of sacred music such that nobody of any nation may receive an impression other than good upon hearing it. And this is what Dennis is speaking about Gregorian chant. Even when, uh, if I remember this correctly, there's kind of a chant revival back in the, I don't know, nineties, early 2000s. Spanish monks. Well, yeah, there there was the Spanish monks, but I even think uh, like the new agers. I mean, it was... (laughs) They, I mean, they were listening to chant. Uh, if not for its uh, holiness factor, they recognize that there's something in that music that is transcendent and otherworldly. So, yeah, that's the general impression that anybody gets upon hearing chant. And, you know, Pius X had that rule that um, the more sacred music approaches the character and quality of Gregorian chant, the more suitable it was for the liturgy, which can sound at first kind of limiting, like, oh, everything has to sound like the Graduale Romanum, but it's not really, that's not the point. If it is from God about God to God, if it is by nature true art, if it's by nature integrally woven into the text yeah, and universal, based, it's scriptural based, then you have appropriate liturgical music that serves the liturgy. And kind of the, <clears throat> the good thing about chant is that it sometimes in some ways removes the musical part of it and makes the text primary 
which is what is important. Yeah, you know, in uh, you remember uh, our friend Josquin Dupre? Mm-hmm. All right, so he was a pre-Trent uh, composer who had just awesome, fantastic music, like for six equal voices. Is that how it's written? Yeah, find some Josquin Dupre I will. there. And musically, it was uh, at, at the pinnacle. The problem with it, though, if there was a problem, is that the music was so beautiful that the text became muddled and lost. And the story mm-hmm. is that when the, when the fathers of the Council of Trent gathered, they were, going, they were prepared to outlaw polyphony because the casualty was the text. Mm-hmm. And our Redeemer happens to be a word. So they're, they're very... It does have this kind of ethereal sound, though. But what are they saying? Any idea? I honestly don't know what people are saying sometimes in, in other liturgical music. So just when they were black. just when they were about to uh, ban this, as I understand the story, another composer comes on and shows them how to do counterpoint and make the text st- uh, rise to the surface so that it won't be lost in the music. And that's that pal- is Palestrina. That's Palestrina. That's Palestrina. So the council fathers translate. Okay, I guess we can keep this polyphony. But this—that's a great point. It, it's uh, the music and the liturgy has to be based upon the text and amplify the text. So John Paul totally rips off Pius X here, by the way. In paragraph twelve, he says, "I make my own the general rule that Saint Pius X formulated," and then he quotes him. So he's stealing the rule. So, so you can't just say, "Oh, well, Pius X was 115 years ago, and we don't have to listen to him anymore." Here it is: the more closely a composition for church approaches in its movement, inspiration, and savor. The Gregorian melodic form, the more sacred and liturgical it becomes. The more it is out of harmony with this model, the less worthy of it is in the temple. So again, it doesn't mean it has to be chant of the kind we expect, but it should be something that is worthy of prayer based on the text. And he, he says, John Paul says, that new composition can, can be imbued, imbued with that same spirit and then be worthy of the liturgy. But he says, these new things have to be worthy of the exalted nature of the mysteries celebrated and at the same time be suited to contemporary sensibilities. That's a number 12. So that's the good Catholic view that we can do new things, but they have to be new things that are liturgical in character. And then he asked the Congregation for Divine Worship to pay attention to these things, which I don't know if they did. But that Would you say that the closer a church document on music relates to childless electitudiny, the, like the, the better the church document is? That is a is? very good analogy. Thank you. Yeah. Think about it this way. The more a homily corresponds to the nature and importance and elevation of the gospel, the more worthy it is as a homily, right? The more a mother or father corresponds to the loving care for a child, the more they correspond to the perfection of parenthood. So what's the nature of the liturgy? It's sung, it's about God, it's rooted in the gospel, reaches into the heavenly realms, that's the nature of the liturgy. So music that does all those things is more appropriate, and they're arguing that chant, by its history and development, has done that well. All right. Hey, uh, also, before we go to the question, we're going to answer 100 questions, right, for this episode? Okay. C. Um, Rapid fire liturgy questions. Boom. Uh, Did you get that? Did you get that? C? What? C. Not not C C? in Spanish, but the the, the letter C. Oh, okay. Like the holy C? No, the letter C. A, B, C. Latin, Latin numerals. For 100. Oh, hey. So you thought that other joke that was, was a nerdier joke. That, that was, was a very nerdy bad. joke, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, no, I want to appreciate all of our listeners because 
clearly all 100 of them <laughs> who all listened like a ton to every episode um no because we wouldn't be able to do this without our listeners and we really appreciate the the fact that you are spreading the word about us and that you enjoy listening to us because uh had we had like a hundred listeners every episode it'd be very difficult to get out of bed in the morning drive to wisconsin and record with chris no, not for me and uh, I do but, it for 99. <laughs> yeah, we have lower standards, I think. Um, no, but we really appreciate all of the listeners, especially those who are Patreon supporters. So if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash liturgy. Chris, what do you want to say to all these people who you thought were imaginary for so long? This, these quarter million downloads. Chris? <laughs> yeah, there oh, you go. Yeah. Perfect all answer. Right. All right. Yeah. Cough out. Something to cough at, nothing to sneeze at. I get it. All right. Chris, you have no sincere words to say to these people. I just don't I believe it. I sincerely thank I everyone who listens it. to these podcasts. And if you're driving in your car right now, make a left turn at the light. Look what he did with his <laughs> chirograph. <laughs> Is that really the theme song? Yes. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Lindsay. Lindsay says... Is this Lohan or Summers? No, definitely no, neither. Okay. Hello, I have a question. Lindsay Lohan asks us a question, I think we have bigger problems. Oh, Jamie, it's Jamie Summers was played by <laughs> Lindsay Wagner, so it's not... Who's Jamie Summers? The Who's Bionic Lindsay Woman. Lin- she was the woman who played the Bionic Woman. Okay, Lindsay Wagner. Quin- Quin- you, guys are, you guys are really making yourselves sound old. I am old I- and I'm proud of it, so there you go. All right, Lindsay. Neither Lohan nor whatever... Wagner. Hello, I have a question about the liturgy of decorating the church for Christmas Mass. Where is the proper location for the nativity scene at church? I am a newer Catholic, and I am in charge of decorating for Christmas. Our parish has a new liturgy committee who have decreed that it is wrong to have the nativity in the sanctuary at all. However, every Catholic that I have polled of every age has stated the nativity scene is always at the altar. I would be really grateful for your assistance in finding an answer to this. Thank you so much, Lindsay. There's a lot of things in that uh, question, and it might be accurate to her experience that most nativity scenes she sees are in the sanctuary in front of the altar. That's what I've seen. Which seems kind of logical. It's Christmas time, put in a place where everybody can see it. However, Chris, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, I came across in the... um it would be wonderful if there were a single clearing house for these types of things, but there really isn't. Uh, Built of Living Stones might say some things about it, but I'm pretty certain that in what's called the Book of Blessings, there's the order for the blessing of a nativity scene, and it talks in that document about where it's to be placed. Uh, I don't know if this is 
because uh, the Book of Blessings gets supplemented by local blessings. So it starts as a kind of normative universal text, and then local bishops' conferences are supposed to add blessings as is suitable for their local area. So I don't know if this is a local blessing or universal. But if you find that in the Book of Blessings, it will say actually that the 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 crash, the manger scene is not to be placed in the, the word they use is presbyterium. Does that mean sanctuary, Dennis? I would think so. Yeah, the priest yeah. place. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there there is a, a norm that says the nativity scene is not to be placed in the sanctuary. Okay. So there's the rule, but why does it say that? That, by the way, is Book of Blessings number. 1544, 154. There's that many blessings? It It says, if the manger is set up in the church, it must not be placed in the Presbyterium. A place should be chosen that is suitable for prayer and devotion and is easily accessible by the laity. Yeah, I think that's that's the answer behind the rule. One, as we've invoked this in an earlier podcast, is in the church, first things should be first, second things centered, third things on the periphery. And so devotions uh, are not only important, but essential, but they are not as essential as other primary and secondary things. And the other point about devotion is is they're supposed to be really popular and of the people. And so, you know, we've got a very fancy devotional set in our church, and I'm always terrified that, you know, one of the little kids is going to take up the camel or something and like smash it into a thousand pieces. But Mm -hmm. the thing is, they should be able to be, if possible, they should be on the people's level in a certain sense so that they can really engage in them. That's the point of a devotional life is to, they're, they're kind of the nitty gritty everyday so, life. Like of made out of people. Legos. <laughs> Talk about a thousand pieces. <laughs> noble simplicity. So if the, um, that's hard to make that the case if it's in front of the altar in the middle of the sanctuary. Now, this is in a perfect world type of setting. If you can put the manger scene in a side chapel or the place of devotion you shouldn't not all places have that and if it, there is no other place well then perhaps there's uh you have to you have to do the best you can with what you have but this is at least what the books uh have right and i think anything that's used to decorate a church especially if it's figural like this is the, like a cornucopia the nativity or... scene is not a decoration that it's not like hanging a star on the wall or a mm-hmm. tree with lights it's actually a scene from the life of christ it's meant to be used as a place of contemplation, meditation on the incarnation. And if it's just a thing you say, oh, well, we always put it in front of the altar and we'll block the altar with this. It's not really being used in the way that it's meant, which is to be used for prayer and devotional practice. So don't obscure the altar and make sure it's something you pray with and not just hang around like any other ornament in the church. All right, Lindsay, I hope that answers your question because I really think these guys crushed it. Uh, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Don't tweet Dennis or Chris. D. McAdee. Thank you and God, God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.